Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. 64% of Americans claim to be Christian. That's roughly 210 million people. Which begs the question, if there are that many people who claim to be Christians living here, why doesn't this place look more like the kingdom of God? I tell you, it's them liberal, Democrat, woke folk that's the problem. <laughs> if only. For generations, the church has put such a high focus on getting people to make a decision for Jesus that we have all but neglected any development or devotion that comes after that. We've turned Jesus into a, a political affiliation. I, I call myself a Christian, I check the box, that's how I identify, and that's really the summation of what it is. <clears throat> and even when we love Jesus in our hearts, how often do we fail to see the world through his eyes? See, church, what we've missed for so long is the importance of the ministry of Jesus. Right? We talk about the mission, right? The mission is the critical bit. The mission is the really important thing where Jesus comes into the world, lives a perfect life, and dies on the cross for our sins so that through his substitutionary atonement, paying the price for our sins, we could be delivered from the death we deserve and become children of God, ushered into new life in him. That's the mission. But you know what the mission doesn't require? The ministry. The cross and the empty tomb would still be a cross and an empty tomb without Jesus traveling around for three and a half years. So what then is the point of the ministry of Jesus? He spent three and a half years traveling around teaching and preaching the kingdom of God. Why? So that the children of God could learn to see the world, not from worldly eyes, not from a cultural perspective, but from a kingdom perspective. Jesus taught so that we could learn to see the world the way that he does. And that's the heart behind this series. The kingdom is. What we're doing through this series is we're grabbing a collection of parables that Jesus tells about the kingdom of God. And by unpacking them, hoping that we can better understand what life looks like when we look through the lens of Jesus. Because in life, when you change your perspective, you change everything. And so we want to be a people that see through the eyes of Jesus, that look at the world through kingdom eyes. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14. And we're going to talk about the parable of the talents, one of Jesus' best-known parables. If you spent any amount of time in church, you've probably heard this parable taught a lot, and for good reason. The parable of the talents teaches 
one of the most important lessons that we can get, one of the most helpful things for us to understand and see the world through the eyes of Jesus. Because the parable of the talents shows us perhaps Jesus' highest value. And if we're going to be like Jesus, if we're going to follow after Jesus, understanding what he values is absolutely essential to that. So this parable is broken up into two parts. You have setup and you have response. So let's dive into the setup in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But the one who had received the one talent went and dug in the, in the ground and hid his master's money. All right, so in a parable, there's a dominant theme, the main point that the parable is meant to teach. But typically, each element of the parable also represents something. So we start with the man who's getting ready to go on a journey. Later, he will be referred to as the master. This is Jesus, the journey he's going to ascend into heaven to prepare a place for us. He's going to be gone for a while. But before he leaves, he calls in his servants. That's us. Okay, our culture says, you're a king and queen, mighty warrior, awesome in your own life, rule yourself. The Bible says you're a servant. And he entrusts each of his servants with a talent based on their ability. Now, we hear the word talent, and we think skill. In the first century, they heard the word talent and thought money, because a talent is a unit of currency based on the weight of a precious metal like silver. So biblically, the two kind of units of currency that are important is the denarius, which is the lowest unit of currency. It's worth a day's wage for a common laborer, and the talent, which is the largest unit of currency, it's worth 6,000 denarii, which is equivalent to six and a half, or 16 and a half years' income if you never got sick, never took a vacation, never took weekends, and there were no holidays. Its rough equivalent would be somewhere between half and $1.5 million. So the money that the master entrusts his servants, this is not some like light walking around money. It's not like Dave Ramsey fun money while you're trying to pay off debt, but you can have a little bit to go use, this is a massive sum of money demonstrating the extreme generosity of Jesus. While talents represent money, it's not just about money. It is. The temptation there is to go, oh, it's not about money, so let's just get money out of the equation. No, this does involve our financial faithfulness and investment in the kingdom of God, but it's not just that. The talent represents any resource that we have in this life. Your skills, your abilities, your connections, your intellect, your relationships, your family, your time. Anything that you have access to falls under this umbrella category of a talent. So I sum it up in this. The talent refers to your time, your talent is in the skill, and your treasure everything that we have in this life. And every one of us has been entrusted with a various degree or various types of talents. The question that we answer with how we live our lives is what are we going to do with the talents that were entrusted to us? 
And for that, there are two responses. The first two servants go one way. It says they got to work immediately. The language with it carries this sense of urgency, like no sooner does the master turn around, he's not even out of town yet, and they've already run off and started trying to invest that money so that they can make more. The third servant doesn't have that same kind of sense of urgency to his story. It's like he just, you know, like dug a hole and put the money in it, and then like he sat down, had a nice little beach day for however long the master was gone. And that leads us into verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. After a long time, the master comes back. And he calls the servants in to settle accounts. This teaches us two very important things. Number one, Jesus is coming back. And number two, when he does, we will all give an account for what we have done with the life he entrusted to us. You will stand before Jesus and you will answer to him for what you have done with the time, talent, treasure, and opportunities he entrusted you. So church, the question that we should ask ourselves before we get out of bed in the morning, the first question in our mind every single day should be, does my life reflect the account that I want to give to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, to the Creator God of the universe, who is the only hope for my salvation? Because we will give an account. The first two servants... They're the word of encouragement. Look at how the master rewards their faithfulness. See, he's pleased with them. He rewards them. In fact, the reward that he gives the first two servants is an equal reward, which by definition makes it not fair because the first servant earns 2.5 times more than the second servant, and yet the master gives them the same reward. Why is that important? Because church, fairness is not a kingdom virtue. It is a worldly obsession that the devil so often uses to twist our hearts against God. See, fairness drives us into this trap of comparison. We start looking at ourselves and evaluating ourselves, assessing ourselves based on what we see in the people around us. Oh yeah, what what kind of car are you driving? What what kind of job you got? How far have you succeeded in life? What kind of things have you done? What kind of clothes are you wearing? What's your bank account look like? Or we take it into like gifts and abilities. We look at people like, man, I wish I had a skill like that. I wish I could do that. That's right, that's why we watch America's Got Talent so that we can 
sin over how much things other people can do. Right? Like, I get that. Like, you look at the worship team, and they all sing, and you're like, wow, they all sound good. And I'm like, look, when I sing, it may be a joyful noise, but it is not a pleasant one. Right? My four-year-old's like, Daddy, can you just not do that? Mom, let mommy sing. Thanks, bud. Right? But we look at other people's gifts, other people's skills, their successes. We're like, well, why didn't I get that? What, what, what about me? I could have done something with that. It's not just in the normal daily life kind of things. It even transfers over to our spiritual lives if we're not careful. We start assessing ourselves based on how other people are doing. Right? You go to a, like a church leadership conference, and inevitably two pastors, when they first start talking, one of the first questions that they ask, like every time, hey, bro, like, how big's your church? I was like, really? Like, that's the thing you want to know? Like, we're here to learn and to grow and to, to become better servants of Jesus, and the thing that you want to do first and foremost is measure church sizes? How is that? Because there's something innate in us that drives us to horizontal comparison, to assessing our success, our development, our performance, and our production by looking at the people around us. In fact, we tend to define success by comparing ourselves to others. Here's what Jesus is saying. The kingdom doesn't do that. Comparison is not a kingdom virtue, it's a worldly one. And when Jesus looks at your success, it's not going to be comparison that is the standard he uses. When the king returns and he calls you to settle accounts, the standard that he uses is not going to be comparison to others. It's not going to be looking at how well you performed or who did the most or who accomplished the craziest thing or who reached the hardest to reach people. The singular standard that Jesus will use to measure and define success is faithfulness. That's the one thing that he's going to look for. Were you faithful with the resources that I entrusted to you? That's the heart behind our kingdom campaign. God has entrusted us with 25 acres in the middle of the fastest growing community in America. We're not looking to build stuff out so like we can be this cool hangout place. No, we want to serve more people, minister to more people, demonstrate the love and grace of God to more people, raise up more leaders so that we can make a bigger impact because God has entrusted us with this and we want to use every square inch of this property to glorify him to the best of our ability. So one of the things we have with that is called a residency, right? Because we don't just want our impact to be like here in Carolina Forest. We don't want to just shift the kingdom of God in our zip code. We want to reach beyond that, and we want to make a kingdom impact for the glory of God. And so we want to be able to bring in missionary teams and missionary families, disaster relief teams to be able to even potentially house people who are going through a hard time or experience loss to be able to provide them with a sense of relief as they get back on their feet. To be a place where ministers who are spiritually drained can come and be refreshed for a season or a place where young leaders can come and get trained and, and formed and get experience so that they can go be spiritual leaders in other places to advance the kingdom of God. 
Because if we want to do everything we can, not just as a group of individuals, but as a community, we want to be faithful to that which God has entrusted us, that we can reach and grow and lead and train and serve one more until there's no more left. We want to be faithful to use what God has given us for his kingdom and his glory. Verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here is what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I had, not scatter, where I had scattered no seed. Read that with a little bit of sarcasm. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was mine with interest. So take from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, he will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the first two servants are the encouragement. In times of struggle and hardship, we need to persevere because the road isn't easy. Let's take heart. Look at how the master rewards his faithful servants. So press on, persevere. The third servant is a warning. And here's the part that makes the warning scary. This is someone who calls Jesus Lord. Okay? That means this is not some God-hating pagan who showers in goat's blood and has a 666 tattoo on his neck. This is a church person who expresses an understanding of the sovereignty and the holiness of God. When he's called to give an account, what he says is, God, you're so big. You're so great. You're so incredible and amazing. What could I do? You are the perfect, holy, sovereign God, and I'm just a wretched sinner. There is nothing that I could do that is worthy of you. So what I did was a whole lot of nothing. He's pretending to have a high view of God. In reality, he has a wrong view of God. See, he says he's afraid. And that's a lie. And Jesus calls him out on it. He says, if you were afraid, you would have taken the money, you would have invested it with a banker, so it would at least earn interest. That takes almost no work, no effort. Even if the servant was just maximum lazy, it would actually be easier to invest the money with a banker than it would be to dig a hole and put the money in it. So why didn't he do that? Because if he invested the money with a banker, he would have to invest it in his master's name. And that would mean that only the master could come to claim it. The reason he dug a hole and put the talent in the ground was because in his heart, he did not believe the master was coming back. And that way, when he was right, when he, if, he, if he was right, he'd be able to go claim it for himself. He put the money in the ground because he wanted to keep it. And then when he's called in, to give an account, he has nothing to show for the time and resources his master gave him. So what he offers 
our clever excuses. Now here's the part that should really wake us up. The description for where the third servant is sent is the exact same description, word for word, that Jesus uses to describe hell. Remember, this is someone who called Jesus Lord. And that's the description of where he's thrown. I think the reason we have 210 million Christians living in America and our country looks so little like the kingdom of God is because we have a whole lot of them that are living like the third servant and not nearly enough that are living like the first two. See, he did nothing. He sat back when the master returned, he tried to make excuses, to justify himself. <laughs> uh, my son's about to turn four. And we don't let him watch a lot of screen time, it's something we try to be really like regulatory with. But he loves his screen time. So then they will like, okay, turn off screen time, it's time to go play, we're gonna decompress a little bit, then we're gonna get ready for bed. He'll be like, Daddy, I, I wanna watch screen time. I'm like, no, dude. Screen time's done for the day, it's over, move on. And he'll look at me and say, but dad, I just really want to snuggle you. <laughs> and I'm standing there looking at him like, boy, I was born at night, but it wasn't last night. Like, you really think that's going to work? This blatantly obvious, unashamed attempt to manipulate me? You really think that's going to work? Is what I'm thinking while we're snuggling on the couch watching screen time. <laughs> And Erica gives me a hard time for all the time because he knows exactly how to play you. And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> because I'm getting what I want. He's only going to want to do this for so long. He's only going to be this size once. And I want to maximize this time that I can enjoy little boy who wants to snuggle me. Because kids have this innate gift, right? Parents, right? That know how to manipulate their parents. What Jesus says here is that does not work for eternity. The unfaithful will not be able to manipulate the goodness of God. They're not going to be able to say, that, well, yeah, but I know I didn't do all the stuff I was supposed to do, but I, I, I believed in you, and I, I loved you, and you're a good God, and you've got grace, and you love everybody, right? So you, you should still save me, right? Like trying to like smooth talk our way in, like we're passing some kind of clever debate. He says, no. No, the disobedient will not be able to appeal to divine pity. You're faithful or you're not faithful. Wow, kind of sounds like you're saying we're saved by works. Let me be real clear. Nope. No one that stands on this stage is ever going to suggest that. And if they do, they're not going to stand on the stage again. Because the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says we are saved by grace not works, so that no one can boast. But what the Bible does teach is that Jesus does not just save you from your sins, he saves you for his service. No, we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for them. We are saved for good works that Jesus had in store for us, that he prepared for us in advance that we would do. Your works do not save you. They don't play a role in your salvation. They don't put a feather in your cap so that you can negotiate a better deal when you get to heaven. Your works are your response to salvation. 
But the sincere question of Scripture is if there are no good works, have you really received salvation at all? Because the works are the natural, reasonable, only acceptable response. See, religion teaches us sin, that's bad stuff that you do. Lying, cheating, stealing, adultery, murder, you know, that's, that's bad. Shouldn't do those things. That's sin. The Bible says that's not all of it. The Bible says there's two types of sin. There's sins of commission, which are the evil, bad things that we shouldn't do. And there's sins of omission, which are the good and godly things that we're supposed to do, but don't. What this parable says is that in the eyes of Jesus, not doing what he says to do is just as offensive and just as deserving of punishment as doing the evil things that we take such pride in avoiding. Disobedience to Jesus in the eyes of the kingdom is just as wrong as committing some moral atrocity. And what Jesus tells us to do, what he commands us to do, and just to put emphasis on it, it's the, it's the last command that he gives before he ascends into heaven after he raises from the dead, is go make disciples. Don't just be a disciple, go make disciples. He says, I want you to follow me. I want you to die to yourself every day. Deny yourself every day and live for me. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, not your own. And when we do not obey the instructions of Jesus, we're committing here's the scary part. You know how many sins are listed about this third servant? You know what we're told that he did wrong? A whole lot of nothing. It doesn't say he did anything wrong. It doesn't say he actively committed some action. What it says is he didn't do what the master told him to do. That's it. See, the beauty and the significance of this parable is that it shows us a truth that will change the way you look at your life. If you can accept this, if you can learn to look at life through the lens that this parable teaches, it will change everything. And it's this. What you have doesn't belong to you. It's not yours. Your house, your car, your income, your salary, your job, your success, your connections, family, friends... Your life, your body, the very breath that you breathe, it does not belong to you. It was given to you by Jesus, entrusted to you by Jesus. And his expectation is that his people will use the resources he has given them for his kingdom and his glory. Jesus' expectation in response to the grace that he freely gives is faithfulness. Faithfulness is perhaps the highest virtue and value in the kingdom of God. What is it? Let's define it like this. Faithfulness is obedience to the instructions of Jesus built on a deeply rooted trust in Jesus. Because you cannot have faithfulness without trust. 
In order to live faithfully, you have to believe in the core of who you are, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he died on the cross for our sins, and that he rose from the dead. And you have to believe that he will do what he said he would do, which is return and bring us into eternal life with him. What's crazy, I, I grew up in church, right? So I heard a whole bunch of sermons. I went to a Bible college, so I studied the Bible for a little while. I've been in ministry for like, I don't even remember how many years. I don't want to tell you because I'm older than I want to be. I never caught this until we started this series. Even reading through the Gospels, you see all these parables. You're like, oh, cool, parable here, parable here. They tell us different stuff about the kingdom. That's great. They're not isolated parables. When you take the parables out and you hold them up together, you realize these are pieces of a puzzle. And when you fit them together, what they give us is a picture of what the kingdom looks like, of the kingdom perspective of life. So this parable talks about faithfulness, which is built on trust. Last week, Pastor Rick talks about two things. Parable, the, the treasure in the field, and the pearl of great price. Two stories, same story arc. Guy finds treasure, goes and sells everything he owns with great joy, comes back and buys treasure. Why did they add that little detail with great joy? Why would he have great joy in selling everything he had? Because he understood that what he was getting was worth far more than what he had to give up in order to get it. That's trust in Jesus. It's recognizing the value of Jesus. It's recognizing that if we have to give up everything in our life, if we have to leave our house, our job, our car, if we have to leave our comfort zone and our safety and our security, and we gotta go to a place where we don't feel gifted or capable, that getting Jesus is worth all of it more. That's trust in Jesus. It's looking at the word of God and saying, okay, Jesus, you say, don't do this, but in my flesh, I want to do that, but I trust that you're worth more. I trust that you're better, so I'm not going to do what I naturally want to do. I'm not going to live the way I want to live. I'm going to live for you, and I'm going to hold your view and hold to your truth because I believe in the core of who I am that your truth is better than my fleshly desire. Obedience to Jesus, set on a foundation of trust in Jesus, which is how Jesus defines faithfulness. And what fuels our faithfulness, what gives us the ability to continue to be faithful when life doesn't go our way, when it requires sacrifice, when it gets hard, is not just a trust in what Jesus has done, but in what he will do, that he is coming back. That the king who conquered the grave and has gone to prepare a place for us before he brings us back to life with him for eternity, before he left, he entrusted you with talents. He provided you with resources. And when he returns, he's going to judge your work or your lack of it. 
because we will all give an account to Jesus for what we have done with the resources he's given us. See, over and over in the Bible, it tells us to be ready. Nobody knows when Jesus is coming back, the day or the hour. Nobody knows, so be ready. Not get ready, because we don't know when it's going to happen. You have to live every day ready. That's the commission of Scripture. We do that by utilizing the resources Jesus has given us for his kingdom. That's what readiness looks like. But here's the bit that is so unbelievable to me. You have grace, right? The foundation of our faith. Jesus, who is God, leaves the throne room of heaven to be born into this world, to live as a man and to suffer and die for sins he never committed. That he endured an agony beyond which we could fathom for us. Out of his incredible love for us, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he rose from the dead to bring us to new life so that we would stop being the enemies of God and we would become the children of God. Jesus gives us a new identity, a new name, and a righteousness that is not based on what we have done, but what he has done, that is not built on our performance or our goodness, but on his performance and his goodness. And he gives us this unobtainable, unfathomable, unearnable, undeservable grace of life in him. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. He gives us this grace, and then he entrusts us with resources. And Jesus has the audacity to then reward us for using the resources that he gave us in the first place for him. You get how absurd that is? Jesus gives you the resources and then he rewards you above and beyond his already unfathomable grace for using them faithfully. This is church. Jesus is not just unimaginably gracious. He's unfathomably generous. And what we have in these storms and these struggles and these hardships in life is this promise and reminder that you will never outgive him. And even if you lost everything and had to sacrifice everything and all you got in return was Jesus, what you got was worth so much more than what you had to give up. But it's never just that. He goes, aren't you and I? Aren't you and I? How do, you comp- how do you not love a God like that? How do, you comp- how do you not love a God like that? How do you hold something back for a God like that? Faithfulness is living our lives ready for the return of Jesus by living in such a way that we are prepared to give an account when he calls us in to settle it. If there's one thing that I can be called in this life, one hope that I have above all other hopes, is that when I shove my body in the ground and I stand before Jesus as I'll hear these words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come and enter into your master's joy. Like you get that? 
This is the greatest desire in the heart of a child of God is to hear that approval from their father. But do you get what that moment is? It's the creator who formed you, who knitted you together in your mother's womb, who knew and loved you before the creation of the world, saying, you have caused me joy. Come share in it. Your life, the faithfulness with which you have lived, the way you have used the resources I gave you, you have caused me joy. That's the first two servants. I'm reminded of the story of Polycarp. He was a bishop in the early church. The Roman Empire had outlawed Christianity. So they arrested him. And the penalty for being a Christian was death. But he was so well beloved, even amongst the Roman soldiers, that they pleaded with him, just renounce, just deny. As they tied him to a pyre to burn him alive, just renounce so we can let you go. And his response to them, 80 and six years I have served my Lord. And not once has he been anything but unfaithful to me. How then now could I be unfaithful to him? Can you imagine treasuring Jesus so much that while they're lighting the wood under your feet for believing in him, you worship? Church. If you were called to give an account to Jesus today for what you have done with the time and resources he entrusted to you, would you be happy with what you had to show him? Let me add to that. If you were called to give an account to Jesus today, Based on scripture, would he be happy with what you had to show him? Would he call you faithful? And if not, what are you going to do differently? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. All the words in the world and all the songs that can be sung could not come close to expressing your glory. That you would love us, rescue us, and call us to be yours. God, I pray that you would stir in us, that you would drive us to be these first two servants. That we would live our lives with a sense of urgency for your kingdom. that we would lay down whatever we needed to lay down, sacrifice whatever we needed to sacrifice, give it all up if we needed to for you. But whether we're called to sacrifice or just to share and serve, may we be faithful to you that each of us may hear these words, well done, my good and faithful servant. 
we would live worthy of obtaining the joy that you bring us into. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.